Well, as we jump in this morning, I'm just curious, how many of you remember when President Gerald Ford died and the ceremonies happened here in Grand Rapids? Were some of you living, yeah, okay, so many of you remember that. You were living here in Grand Rapids at the time. Uh, my family and I were living here in Grand Rapids. That would have been 2007. He died in like late 2006. The, the ceremonies were in early 2007. And so at the time, we were living right across from Riverside Park, just north of downtown, here in Grand Rapids. And so I discovered that after the ceremonies were over that were going to happen downtown, I learned that there was going to be this formation flight of F-16 fighter jets. Do you remember this? They were going to fly from downtown, and they were going to fly right over Riverside Park, right next, right over the Grand River, right where I lived. And then there was going to be this symbolic solo flight that would take off and go straight up in the air from them. And when I found out they were going to do that, I thought to myself, I just need to cancel every meeting and get back. I need to get there, and I need to see that. This historic moment in the history of mankind, I need to be there. And so I went home, and I found my two oldest boys who were at home at the time. They were ages five and four. And uh, I said to them, boys, there's going to be these fighter jets that are going to come over and they fly over right over our heads, right by our house. Do you guys want to go see this? And they were like, yeah, dad, that sounds awesome. And so we walked across the street to Riverside Park and there were just hundreds of people there. I mean, cars were parked all up and down side the streets, on our block, everywhere. And so, I mean, some of you may have, maybe were there. It was just hundreds and hundreds of people at Riverside Park. So what we did is we kind of fought our way through the crowd, and we found a spot right by the edge of the river, right there where we could kind of plant ourselves, and we could see downtown, we could see where the planes were going to come by, and then we waited with great anticipation, and all these people are talking, all these people are there, and finally this moment comes, and here come the planes, and they're flying low and slow, and they come right above our heads, and literally right above us, that solo jet takes off and just shoots straight up in the sky, and the thing I remember about that moment was like how quiet everybody got. You know what I'm talking about? It's hundreds of people stretched all the way down the park, and it was like all you heard were those planes. That was it. Everybody just got totally dead still quiet. I mean, I had to like restrain myself. It was a, such a powerful moment from breaking into like, oh, say, can you see? And being like that guy. And, and so this is such a great moment. And as that flame goes straight up in the air, I look over at my two boys because I'm thinking, how is this moment impacting my two boys? Is this, is this meaningful to them? And I look over and my son, Andrew, who is four years old, is literally bent over on the ground and he's looking at a rock. He's doing like this. <laughs> literally, he'd like picked up a rock off the bank and he's just turning it over. He's not even looking up in the air. And I remember like, I was just so shocked. Like, are you kidding me? So I was so disappointed. Like he missed it. He missed this incredible moment, this incredible meaningful moment. So I take him and we go back home. We walk, all we had to do was walk across the street and I get in the house and my wife Carrie is there and she says, how did it go? And so I told her, I was like, I can't believe, he missed it. Like he just, it was sort of ruined the moment for me. Like he was just playing with this rock. He didn't even see these, these fighter jets overhead. And as we began to talk about that and reflect on it, a thought began to occur to me. And it's a thought I've reflected on as, as I've even reminisced about that story over the years. And the thought that began to occur to me is maybe he wasn't the one that missed it that day. Maybe it's me who misses it every single day. If you think about it, what, what do you really need in order to be happy? What do you really need in order to be happy? See, Andrew, in that moment, he didn't need you know, F-16 fighter jets flying over his head in a solo flight. All he needed was a rock. That's all he needed in order to find the moment that he was living in enchanted and powerful. That's all he needed was a rock. 
And so oftentimes, that's just not the case. If you're a parent in this room, if you've, if you've been a parent of small children, I know you've noticed this. You've picked this out. Have you noticed how much our kids are able to find more and more in less and less and less than we're able to find? You know, you give them a Christmas present and they spend two hours playing with the box. <laughs> you take them on an, you know, a trip to an incredible destination and all they talk about for years afterwards is the hotel pool they got to swim in when you stopped on the way down. You know what I'm talking about, right? I was like, seriously, that's what you remember is the nasty hotel pool after I paid all this money to go down to this trip to Disney World or whatever it is? And that's how it is. Our, our kids, it's like we're born with this innate ability to find more in less. And the reason that becomes so apparent to us is because the older we get, the, long, the more we mature, the more f- sophisticated we become in our tastes, the more we find less and less and less in more and more and more. As we get older, we become less curious. We become less imaginative. We become less filled with awe and wonder at the everyday moments that we find ourselves in. And it becomes apparent when you have kids, you notice this big gap between them and us. And so in the West, our solution to that most often in the West is we just turn the knob up on more and more and more then. Well, I need more of everything. My ultimate goal of life is just to upsize and supersize my stuff. And if I can just turn the knob up on more and more and more and more, maybe it'll lead to that place again where I have this sense of awe and wonder about life. And this is the world we live in. And so today, I want to just ask the question, what do we really need in order to be happy? Uh, I want to begin, we're going to look at uh, Hebrews 13, verse 5. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases the original language of the text in the message translation. Here's how he phrases it. It says, don't be obsessed with getting more material things. Be relaxed with what you have. Since God assured us, I'll never let you down. I'll never walk off and leave you. We were just singing about that a minute ago. So don't be obsessed with getting more. Don't just be obsessed with cranking the knob up on more and more and more things. That's not the way to to a good life. But be relaxed with what you have. Since God assured us, I'll never let you down and I'll never walk off and leave you. And so I just want to explore a little bit this morning in this first message of this series, what really constitutes the good life? What do we really need to be happy Like, what constitutes the life that's worth living or the life that's worth imitating in somebody else? What does that actually consist of? Um, If you grew up in America, from the time you were born, you have been spoon-fed this equation for life, this equation for happiness. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. This is what we're told from the time we are born. And the good life equation that we're fed is that accumulation plus isolation will someday lead to happiness Eventually, like if you just keep accumulating more and more and more, eventually it will lead to happiness. This is what we're spoon-fed. This is what we're told every single day of our lives from the time we're born to this moment that we're sitting in right now. So if we could, I'd like to just break that down for a moment and explore that. So we'll start with accumulation. Did you know that housing size in America has absolutely ballooned in the last 70 years? Um, In fact, there's like some um, measurements of that that the Census Bureau has done. The average size of a new American home in 1950 was 983 square feet. That's a small house. That's not very much space. 
In 2016, the average new home was 2,422 square feet. Much, much larger. And that's according to the Census Bureau. And those figures actually don't give us the whole picture of of how big our houses are per person. In 1950, an average of 3.37 people lived in each American home. In 2016, that number had shrunk to 2.6 people. Basically, all that math is telling you is, basically, we have three times as much space per person than we used to have in 1950. So you would think, wow, since our housing size has ballooned, since we've got so much space and our homes are so much bigger than they used to be per person, well, obviously then we've just got plenty of space to store all our stuff, right? All of our possessions. I mean, we've probably just got big empty spaces in our house, right? Just big open homes with no, and and actually that would be wrong. That's not true. (laughs) Did you know the fastest growing commercial real estate market right now in the U.S. is the personal storage industry? The, like personal storage units. If you're looking for a place to make some money and invest, personal storage units would be the way to go. Last year in 2018, the personal storage industry grew to a $38 billion industry. We can't put storage spaces up quick enough. So that the biggest problem we seem to have with our supersized houses, our houses keep getting bigger, our space keeps getting larger, but we just don't have enough room. We need to rent space. We, we just don't have enough room for all of our stuff that we just keep accumulating more and more and more and more. But it's not just accumulation that's the problem. It's that the more and more that we accumulate, the more it leads to a life of isolation. The other thing you've noticed, Randy Frazzi and other people uh, like him have talked about this Um, But houses are built much differently today than they were in like 1950. You see that in our town. In Grand Rapids, you see that. uh, Where if you go down to like older neighborhoods, what you'll see is that homes were built on smaller lots closer to the road. And a lot of times they were built with these large front porches that face out toward the road. And the whole purpose behind that was so that you had access to your neighbors. So that you saw people and you interacted with them on a regular basis. But houses today, when when homes are built today, they're built on much larger lots farther back from the road with an attached garage that we drive into and then we shut the door, right? And then we open the door and we drive out. So you never have to see or talk to your neighbors ever. And if you're like our family, if you moved from an older neighborhood in town to a newer neighborhood, uh, like our family did, maybe you've noticed the same thing. When you get to the newer neighborhood and you're like, why is it so hard to meet our neighbors? It's because the actual architecture itself doesn't lend itself to that, where it was just so easy in the old neighborhood because of just the way the, ho- the homes are constructed. And so we've, we, the more we accumulate, the more we go down that path, the more the tendency is to isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves more and more and more. Now, I want, I want to be careful here. I want you to understand there's a difference between isolation and solitude. Okay, those are not the same thing. Solitude is a spiritual practice, and it's a very good thing. Oftentimes, you see over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus uh, pulled away from the crowds and he went into a place of solitude so he could be with the Father. And, and that in our lives, that regular spiritual discipline of pulling away from life and just taking time in solitude to be with the Father is a life source for us. It's an incredible practice to get in the habit of doing. Um, so solitude is not a bad thing. Solitude is a very good thing. The difference, when I'm talking about isolation, the motive or the goal of isolation is about protection, So the reason we isolate the more we accumulate is that the goal is I need to protect myself. It's about safety. I need to, and really, I need to protect my stuff, my belongings. Or maybe in some cases, it's I need to protect my image. 
the way I'm seen as, you know, in society as part of this group or that group. I need to protect. And so isolation is an attempt in some way to sort of protect what we have. And what's so deeply tragic about that is that we know that the deepest need of any human being is to be known and to be loved and to be able to experience connection in community with other people. That's the deepest need of my life. It's the deepest need of your life. As a human being, that's the deepest need that we have. And yet we've bought into this lie that the more we accumulate, the more we isolate, eventually it's going to make us happy. Eventually it's going to lead to some measure, some level of happiness. And so if that's what we've been fed, I think the appropriate question we have to be willing to ask at some point is this question. Has this equation actually led to happiness? It's a fair question, right? Has that equation, accumulation plus isolation, more and more eventually, has it actually led to happiness? Study after study after study has shown that once your basic needs of life are met, okay, like food, shelter, water, clothing, once your basic needs of life have been met, that wealth and material possessions actually does not make a difference in your overall well-being and sense of happiness. In fact, there was one study that put it this way. The failure of additional wealth and consumption to help people have satisfying lives may be the most eloquent argument for reevaluating our current approach to consumption. And that is exactly what I suggest that we begin with today, that we actually begin by reevaluating our current approach to consumption, that we begin by just putting on trial the thing that we've been spoon-fed from the time we were born, that accumulation plus isolation is gonna lead to happiness. It's gonna lead to a good life. And begin to ask, what do I really need in order to be happy? So what I wanna do is I want to offer a different equation for what it means to live the good life. And it's an equation that's based on what Jesus taught, the life that he invited us into as followers of his, It's the life that over and over again you see in the New Testament church, the way that they were being led and the way that they were living. There's a different equation that actually leads to a good life. And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The equation is heart plus habits equals hope. That's the way we just kind of framed it uh, for this series. Heart plus habits equals hope. So again, let me break that down. Let's take that piece by piece. Let's begin with heart. Any uh, change that we might make in our lives toward reevaluating what would really make us happy, what really leads to the good life, any sort of change when it comes to how we look at our money and our possession has to begin with our hearts. It has to begin with a conversation about our hearts because ultimately that's what God is after is our hearts. Jesus talked again and again and again in the gospels about the connection between our hearts and our possessions. In Matthew chapter six, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' core manifesto for what it meant to follow him as a disciple, he said these words, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So according to Jesus, The number one competitor for your heart is not your time. It's not your friendships. Even though those are important things to reevaluate, those things can be competition for your heart. But it's not not your hobbies. It's not your interests. The number one competitor for your heart, according to Jesus, is your treasure, your money 
and your possessions. That's the number one thing that competes for your heart. John Wesley famously, uh, people famously quote him for saying, the last conversion is the conversion of the wallet. What he means by that is, we'll get, when, when we go on this process of, of what we call sanctification, of surrendering our lives to God, we'll give, we'll give God our time. Okay, God, I'll, I'll surrender my time to you. I'll make time to do the things that you call me to do. We'll, give, you know, we'll think about our friendships and boundaries. We'll think about forgiveness. We'll think about every other area, my hobbies, my interests. But that last thing, my, don't talk to me about my money and my possessions. That's the one area that we remain white-knuckle gripped with. It's always the last thing that we're willing to surrender to God. And Jesus said, why? It's because that's the thing that's most tied to our hearts. Wherever your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to naturally be also. We have to experience some heart change if we're going to live according to the way God wants us to live. If we're going to experience the good life that he wants us to have, we have to cultivate a heart that's in line with the Father's heart. So how do you do that? Go ahead back to that equation. Notice it's heart plus habits is what we're talking about. And here's why I say that. Over and over again, what you see in the New Testament is that habits are talked about, habits that we put in, in place in our lives that help us cultivate and develop a heart that we, that we need to have before God. If you don't put habits in your life that help you develop the heart that God wants you to have, what will happen to you is you'll get really excited. Your heart will, in your heart, you'll say, man, I'm, I'm gonna make a change. Today's a change. And you'll get really excited and emotional about it. And three weeks later, you will have just sort of slid back into the same equation you've always, because you're being spoon-fed it every single day of your life, whether you see it or not, that accumulation plus isolation is really what will lead to happiness. If I just keep trying hard enough and long enough, you'll just slip right back into that. So the only way to really cultivate a heart change over a long period of time is to talk about our habits, to put habits in place to actually help us cultivate that heart that God wants. In fact, the last sermon of this uh, series on week four, we're gonna spend the whole time just talking about those habits. What are those habits that, that God talks about that help keep our hearts pure and devoted to him? But for our purposes today, let me just give you one so you kind of see where this idea comes from. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, and he's talking to them about like these habits that we have in our lives, and he says this. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, so what was happening is they were being asked to give to help out a sister church in Jerusalem that was struggling, and so they had apparently asked Paul a question about like, how do you want us to collect the money for that? How do you want us to do that? And so he says, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. I've been saying this all over the place. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So what he's saying is don't just wait for some big emotional moment where God moves your heart. Like, I'll, I'm going to show up and I'm going to preach a sermon. Don't just wait until that moment and then try to collect all the money then. What he's describing is put a regular practice, a regular habit in place in your lives and that regular habit was each of you, on the first day of, of, each, of each week, set aside a portion of the money that you're going to devote to God and give uh, in, in order to, you know, for this offering. And so when I show up, it's like you've already put this practice in place. And by the way, I've been saying that to the churches in Galatia and everywhere. This is a habit and a practice that Paul called the church to live into. By the way, this is why we take up a weekly offering when we gather at church. 
Have you, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered, like, why? You know the thing we just did a moment ago, the ushers are going to come forward. There are three ways to give on the screen. Do you, have you ever wondered, like, why do we do that? Why do we have to do that every week when we come to church? That's why. It's because the instruction to the New Testament church, the way they were called to live was get into a regular discipline, a regular habit of honoring God first. Each of you is, is to set aside a portion of what God has blessed you with and get into a regular habit of that and that will cultivate the heart that God wants us to have before him. By the way, the same thing happened with church attendance. Have you ever wondered why do we gather on Sundays and not just Sundays, why do we gather on Sunday morning uh, as the body to have church and to worship together and take up an offering? Why do we do that? Have you ever wondered like where, does, where do those kind of things start? Those things actually started from these kinds of practices so the thinking was, we're going to do the same thing with time that we do with money. And so the church very early on said, well, if the first day of the week is Sunday, that's the way they thought, if the first day of the week is Sunday, we're going to gather on the first part of the day of the first day of the week, and we're going to give God the first part of our time, and we're going to get in a habit of doing that. We're going to discipline ourselves to do that. And the thinking is, we're going to devote that first chunk of our week to God, trusting him that he's going to take care of the rest of the week if we discipline ourselves to be faithful with that, just like we do with our money. And when we do that, when we discipline ourselves with habits and we put habits in our lives, that what happens is our hearts begin to become cultivated into what God calls us to be cultivated into in terms of our hearts. And so once you get these habits to this place, what begins to happen is you begin to experience as you walk with these habits, this heart change. And the way I'll, I'll describe the way it happened in my life is I remember like realizing the more I lived into these habits that there was this big long list of stuff that I thought I really needed. And what I began to realize the more I, I lived into this, into these habits, I started to realize actually there's this really short list of things over here that I really need in life. The list is actually very short. And the things that really matter are, is just this short list of things over here. And so what you realize is this heart change begins to take effect. You begin to cultivate this heart through living out these habits. As, and God begins to show you these things as you start to realize, man, I've been sacrificing all the things on the short list over here in order to get more and more of these things over here on the long list. And it's not worth it. You start to realize this isn't the equation that's actually going to lead to any kind of fulfillment or happiness in my life. And for me and for, for others of you in this room, something will happen like a cancer diagnosis or something will come along and you find out really quick what's on that short list. What are the things that really matter? And so all that we're talking about here is develop habits now. Cultivate habits in your life right now that help you develop the kind of heart that, that leads to the good life, that leads to a life of hope, that leads to a life of fulfillment. That's what God wants us to experience. So we'll go back to that equation, heart plus habits. When we live that way, it leads to hope. And some of you right now in this room are going, okay, yeah, I get it, hope someday in heaven. Yeah, treasure in heaven, you know, all that kind of stuff. I get it that it's hope someday. But the question I, I wanna ask, I mean, that's absolutely true, but the, the question I wanna ask is, does it actually lead to hope right now? If we actually don't buy into sort of the Western American accumulation plus isolation will lead to happiness, and we actually start to live this way, does it lead to hope right now in our lives? And I'll, I'll answer that question as honestly as I know how. The truth of the matter is, probably not at first. It probably won't lead to, to hope right at first. In fact, if you actually decide to reevaluate and to actually begin to live this way, Honestly, it'll be the hardest thing you ever do. 
It'll be the, the hardest challenge you will ever undertake. And it, it'll be the hardest thing to surrender. The last conversion is a conversion of the wallet. That, that white knuckle grip that we have on our treasure, our money, our possessions is the hardest thing. It is the final thing that we always end up surrendering to God. And it won't lead to hope at first. At first, it'll just be hard. But let me tell you what'll happen. If you stay with it, if you cultivate those habits, if you make a commitment and stay with it, and you allow God to begin to work in your heart and begin to to transform your heart and mold it more and more into the shape of, of his son, of what he wants to do in our lives, what will happen over a period of time is you will get to a point in life where you will realize that you are that you owe less than what you're making just because you've simplified your life and you've realized there's actually a short list and there's not all these things I need and God's blessing you, God in the midst of that takes care of us and you'll get, you will get to a point where you actually owe less than you make and you'll get to a point where you are able to give more than you're accumulating because you don't need as much. And the most beautiful part of that is that if, when you get to that point in life, what happens is you get to a point where you can begin to say yes. When God stirs your heart, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and lays something on your heart, you'll be in a position in life to just immediately say yes. Even without knowing the how, you'll be able to say yes. I can do that, yes. When God moves in your heart, sponsor a child in Ukro, Ethiopia, you'll be able to say yes, I can do that. Because you'll have the margin, you will have created the space in your life because you're not enslaved to a mountain of possessions where you'll be able to say that. Some of you in this room, as we've talked about calling, you say, well, I know God's calling me, but I can't. I just can't. You, if you live this way long enough, you will get to a point in your life where if God calls you to, to leave the profession that you're in, to follow a calling on your life, to do something different with your life, you will actually be able to say, yes, I can do that. Because you will have been living in a way that you're not enslaved. There's space in your life, and you're not enslaved to this mountain of debt to where you can actually say yes and move in that direction. It's the most incredible thing in the world when you get there. We have a, a family in our church who just, um, I, just last week I heard about this family. There's this other couple in our church that's just going through a rough time in their marriage. And so this other family in our church paid for this other couple to go through marriage counseling. You know how, why they were able to say yes and just pay for that's a, that's a pretty big expense. It's because of this. They've just been living this way. When God moved on their, on their hearts to help their friends, it was like, yes, we can do that. And I'm here to tell you, real joy, real hope, real fulfillment, it comes when we get to that point where we can actually be generous and give more than we accumulate because we owe less than what we make and we're not in this place where we're just strapped financially. So the question becomes then, why don't we live this way? Why don't we do that? What stops us from stepping into that life? If it's so great, If it leads to hope right now in our lives and treasure in heaven someday and all that, if it's so great, why don't we do it? Why do we just keep buying into the whole Western idea that isolation and accumulation will eventually lead to happiness? Why do we do that? What stops us from living this out? As I was reflecting on that this past week, I thought about uh, my uncle. So I have an uncle who, when he was a child, he had polio, the disease polio, uh, it's a disease that no longer threatens you or me for the most part in our society, but this uh, disease left him crippled as a child and stole much of his childhood. It wasn't just the disease, actually, it was the surgery he had to go through where doctors had to break his back in order to save his life. One of his legs is shorter than the other one. He's severely crippled. If my uncle walked in the room right now, everybody in this room would look at him. You would instantaneously know he was crippled. You would instantaneously know, wow, that guy walks with a limp. 
it would just be apparent to you, very obvious. But what's interesting about it is, because I grew up, my uncle was in my life from the time I was born, as a kid growing up, I actually didn't know anything was wrong with him. I actually didn't think he was crippled. I didn't think, in fact, the only, I remember thinking, that's just the way my uncle is. It was just normal. That's just the way my uncle walks. He just kind of walks funny. That's just him. That's how he is. I had no idea, in other words, that something was wrong or something had gone wrong or bad in his life that had caused him to be crippled and that there were all these things that he had to overcome in life. I had no sense of that at all. That was just my uncle. That's just the way he was. And I will never forget the shocking conversation I had with my mother. I remember my mom explaining to me, somehow we got on the subject and her telling me, well, you know why your uncle walks that way. And she began to explain polio. She began to explain the, the, the surgery where the doctors had to break his back that left him crippled for his life. And then she dropped the real bombshell. She said, and, and by the way, did you know he's not even your biological uncle? Your dad is an only child. And she began to say, Here, here's what happened. Um, they were in the same grade in the same school. And my dad was just the biggest kid in his grade. He's just this huge kid. And so the teacher said, Bloom, you're gonna go follow my uncle around all day long. And every single time he falls down, your job is to pick him back up. And so that's exactly what my dad did. My uncle would fall down and he literally as a kid could not get himself back up. So my dad would just hang out with him, pick him up all day long every time he fell down. And that's how the two of them became best friends. That's why I called him uncle growing up. And to this day, they're both 72 years old um, my dad wakes up every morning. He gets on a Skype call with my uncle, and they still talk every single day to this day. They are still best friends because of that moment. And I remember just being so shocked by that. I was so shocked that, like, are you kidding? I had no idea what my uncle had gone through. I had no idea that, that he had, what he had had to overcome in order to just do daily things every single day. I had no concept of that at all. Here's why I share that with you. Because every single one of us in this room is crippled. We don't even know it. Every single one of us in this room walks with a limp. From the moment you were born, you were, have been spoon-fed something that has crippled you. And the problem is you just think it's normal. The reason you don't see it in yourself the reason you don't see it in other people is because it's just norm- that was just normal in the family I grew up in, in, in the culture. that it was, It's like, why doesn't a fish know what water tastes like? It's because it's just always been there. They can't tell you what, a water, what water tastes like. They, we've always grown up in it. It's just normal. That's just normal. In my family growing up, it was normal to be enslaved to a mountain of debt. It was normal to fight in your marriage all the time about money. It, it, was, just, it was just normal to always be, you know, the goal of life is just how can I upgrade and supersize all my stuff? That's the only thing. We just, we just bought into that, and we have no idea how much it's left us crippled and how much we actually have to overcome because we bought into that life. Can I be honest? I'm angry. I am angry that we think that it's just normal to be completely enslaved to debt, and to be completely overwhelmed by this life that, that doesn't allow us to say yes to the things God actually calls us to. And so what happens is we live this life that is so disconnected and isolated from the heart of God that we no longer even see the widow, the orphan, the refugee among us, the people that God's literally called us to, that, that he has a heart for. We don't even see those people because we've so focused ourselves on accumulating and isolating, we can't even think about that stuff because we're on a totally different path. 
It makes me angry that we are crippled and we don't even know it and we're missing out on the life God has for us because of it. And so, I want to challenge you with something this morning. And every week of this series, we're going to have a challenge. And next week, we're going to talk specifically about our possessions, and that's going to be an interesting challenge uh, for some of us next week. But for this week, for Super Bowl Sunday, we thought we're going to start easy. So this, the challenge here, the introduction sermon, is actually uh, much easier. But here's what I want to challenge you to think about. I want to challenge you to keep track of your spending for one week. From Sunday today to next Sunday, just for one week, I want to challenge you to keep track of your spending, of what you're spending your money on. I know that sounds simple, but here's what I want you to do. As you're keeping track of your spending, I want you to look for trends. I want you to look for trends in the way that you spend. I want you to look for trends in places where maybe your heart is tied to some things that are not helping you live out the heart of God that he has for you or the calling that's on your life. I want you to look for trends in where you're missing opportunities to be generous in the kingdom. And I want you to ask the question as you're looking at those trends and you're keeping track of your money, what do I really need to be happy? What do I really need to be happy? What do I really need to live the life that God has called me to live fully? And so here's, we're going to give you some resources. We actually created a resource page on our website, frontlinegr.com forward slash simplify. And every week of the series, there's going to be new resources, a new page added. And if you click on that or go to it on your phone or your browser, what you'll find is um, this page will pop up. And there are four boxes there you can click on that will take you to resources. The first one there is called the Mint app. Some of you are familiar with this or some of you are using it even right now. It's a free downloadable app. What it does is it links with your bank account and all your spending opportunities. It links with Amazon, it links with credit cards, whatever you spend with. And so it gives you in real time on an app the ability to track what you're spending, where it's going to, and how much you actually have in real time left. And it's, so it's a great app. Uh, a couple ones down, Every Dollar app. That uh, is another app that does similar things. I, I'm not as familiar with that one. I, I don't know that one as well, but I, that's another one that people use. So we put the link to that there. Um, if you're an old school type of person, um, right there in the middle where it says spending ledger, you can actually click on that and there's a downloadable PDF of just a spending ledger. So you can print it out and it's like with paper, you can actually track your expenses. And I challenge you to do whatever you use, track your expenses this week and ask the question, what do I really need? to be happy? Where am I missing opportunities to be generous in the kingdom? And then last there, uh, the fourth thing you can click on is Financial Peace University. Uh, every year at Frontline in the spring, for years now, we have done a class called Financial Peace University. It's Dave Ramsey's material. And uh, it's a class that is taught by Tim Roselle. Tim, raise your hand. I'm sorry, I'm doing this to you right in the front row. But um, Tim has been a part of our church since the beginning of Frontline. Tim was part of the interview team that interviewed me um, when I came on staff. And so Tim, for years, has taught Financial Peace University. I'm telling you, this class has changed people's lives because it, it helps you actually get on top of an actual plan to get out of debt and to begin living and putting those habits that we were talking about, putting those habits into place in your life. And so um, if that's you, if you know you need to take that step, Carrie and I took that class with Tim over a decade ago. And to be very honest with you, that class and the changes we made in our lives probably are what enabled us to stay in ministry through some very lean times over the years, even here at the church. And so uh, it's, it's a very powerful class. And so just to let you know, it happens 6 to 8 p.m. here at Frontline, starts February 10th. The cost is $99 per family. 
And um, you can sign up right where we already said. And yes, childcare is provided. We didn't want there to be any excuses. Well, I can't come because I, have, I can't pay for a sitter or whatever if you have young kids. So we have childcare that's provided so you can come here to the church and be a part of that. We just want you to take that step and to experience the freedom that comes with walking into a different life. And here's the thing with that. Maybe you're looking at that and you're saying, well, that's not me. Maybe you already took Financial Peace University. I don't need to do that. Maybe you already have the Mint app, or maybe like you already track your expenses. I don't need to track my expenses. There'd be nothing new I would learn. I, always, I already do that every week. It's not a big thing for me. If that's you, then maybe what the challenge for you is today is maybe God would call you to donate so that somebody else in this church, the $99 is needed so that they could go through Financial Peace University. Maybe you need to step forward and say, okay, I'm gonna donate so that somebody else could step into this and experience this class. Because again, we, don't, we think of the good life as accumulation plus isolation, me off in my castle somewhere with more and more of the things I want, that's gonna lead to happiness. We don't think in terms of, no, it's all of us as a community joining together in generosity so that we can do something bigger beyond ourselves than we could ever accomplish. And that God gets the glory for it. I wanna, I wanna encourage us to step into that kind of life because that's the real good life. That's the life that really leads somewhere. So with that being said, I'd love to offer a prayer and then we're gonna close um, with some worship. Uh, so uh, let, let's bow, if you would. Lord Jesus, as we come into this place, first and foremost, God, uh, we just wanna recognize that any hope that we have in our lives, any sort, of, any sort of goodness, any sort of hope comes from you, Jesus. It comes from knowing you. It comes from having our lives surrendered and found in you. And so, uh, God, we just begin this morning by saying thank you for the cross. Thank you for the ultimate act of generosity from the Father that's broken the back of scarcity and greed and accumulation and isolation. On the cross, this incredible act of generosity that you gave your life and redeemed us sets a new standard, sets a new table for a new kind of life. And so this morning, Jesus, we just thank you for that new life we have in you. We thank you for the hope that comes in aligning ourselves with you. And we just ask this morning, would you help us to continue to put habits into our lives that would allow us to experience the, the good life, the life that you have for us, a life where our hearts are completely devoted and we're getting to be a part of your kingdom work. And so God, we wanna be a part of that. We wanna experience that. So um, God, would you lead us? Would you, even this week, show us areas where we need to grow and stretch and we'll just give you all the glory for all that you do in the church. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.